Well, uh, you might have figured out it's Christmas, and I hope that yours has been a delightful one so far. Uh, for lots of folks uh, out there, Christmas can mean a lot of fanfare, maybe a lot of uh, colorful lights and decorations, maybe too much money spent, too much food eaten. Uh, but I say for, for those of us here, those watching online, uh, we know that this is about Jesus Christ in his birth, and it is really just a delight to be with you guys as we honor him this morning. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, it sounds cliche, but Jesus is the reason for the season and this day. Uh, so uh, again, I'm just over rejoicing with you guys to be here praising him. Now, uh, here before us today, we have a, a time of the year, a day, when we consider one of the most mind-blowing things of all time, and that is that God Almighty, our Creator, ruler of everyone and everything, took on human flesh to become like us, to die for us, and to reconcile us to Him. And if we can rightly wrap our heads and our hearts around that concept of God's incarnation for our benefit, and really let it sink in and really dwell on it like we ought to, uh, it can revolutionize how we live our lives for him. I mean, there's this simplicity, there's a beauty, and there is a power to what God has done at Christmas that can fuel our walk with him. Even when we face challenges, even when we go through dark times and seasons. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that that might be where some of you are at. I mean, for many people, Christmas might be the high point of your year. I think uh, uh, my wife Holly and my girls were saying that uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are two of the highlights of their year. Uh, and I wish it were that way for everyone all the time. But maybe there might be some heavy things on your heart, in particular this year, that make this Christmas a little bit different from previous ones. Or maybe uh, your Christmas has been amazing, but you know there are some dark clouds, or if you're in here in Fairbanks, just two more months of dark skies on the horizon and you might be feeling a little bit anxious. And if that's you, that's okay, because we all face challenges in our life, and we all face sometimes of discouragement. But I want to say this morning, there's something intensely encouraging about Christmas that I want us to focus on today. And here's the basic thought that I want to drive home today. I'm just going to give it to you right up front here. God's faithfulness to us in Christmas past gives us confidence about our future so that we can live well for him today. Or if you want to say that same thing just in a slightly shorter way, I'll put it this way. Considering God's past and future faithfulness helps us to live faithfully now. So uh, my approach this morning is going to be short and sweet here. We're going to jump to a few different passages in Scripture. But I want us to start by just looking at God's past faithfulness, focusing on Christmas then I want us to consider his future faithfulness to us. And then just look at our response, which is going to be a faithful life before him. So I'm just going to jump into the first point here. God has been faithful to us in the past. And there's a lot of ways that we can look at his faithfulness. We can look in our own lives when we think, consider how God has showed up in big ways. We can look at human history. We can look at the Exodus. We can look at when the Jews were taken out of captivity in Babylon and returned to their land. But this morning, I want to focus on Christmas because it's Christmas today. And um, 
I'm going to start with an unusual text, but if you want to read along and hop, hop with me through Scripture here, I'm going to start in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Or you can just listen, that's fine. Uh, but I think that so often when we hear the Christmas story, uh, we probably think about Luke chapter 2, or maybe the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel and all the shepherds and angels and wise men and all the stuff. But I'm going to go for the short version, which I really like, which is in Galatians chapter 4. And this is the Christmas story in just two verses here. And it's told from a bit different, but in a very powerful perspective. Galatians 4.4, this is the Apostle Paul writing. And he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, those two verses contain the whole of the Christmas story here. And even though I'm starting here with the short version, so to speak, I really like these versions when we think about Christmas, because it brings up two details that sometimes get missed when we just focus in on Luke chapter 2 or the opening chapters of Matthew. Uh, the two things we get here in Galatians, we get the perfect timing of Jesus' birth, and we get a real clear statement about the purpose for why Jesus took on human flesh here. And uh, I will talk about both of those in a second here, but I just do want to say something about the context of Galatians. Uh, this is not one of the Gospels. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Galatia, modern-day Turkey. And uh, the Galatians were getting confused about how they were supposed to relate to the Jewish law in the Old Testament. So Paul writes them, and he wants to make clear to them, hey, you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by circumcision, not by your works. So it's kind of like a shorter version of the letter to the Romans. But when Paul gets to chapter 4, uh, in the verse that I'm looking at here, he's not attempting to go over the whole narrative of the Christmas story about all the shepherds and angels and that kind of thing, but he focuses in on how Jesus' birth fits into the big picture of God's redemption of mankind. He looks at it theologically. Here is God's perfect plan from eternity to redeem mankind by taking on human flesh, living as a man, dying for our sins, and rising from the grave. And again, the two things that he draws attention to in these verses we just read are the perfect timing of Jesus' birth and the purpose for why he was born. So I'm going to talk just briefly about each of those. First, the timing of Jesus' birth was perfect. Uh, Galatians 4.4 starts out with the phrase, I love this phrase, when the fullness of time had come. Uh, that's from the ESV. If you're reading from the 2011 NIV, they word it. But when the set time had fully come, same thought. I think the ESV's translation is a little closer to what's going on in the Greek there. But Jesus was born when the fullness of time had come. In other words, his incarnation, his birth were just at the right time. And that's quite a bold statement from the Apostle Paul because the truth of the matter was mankind had been waiting and hoping for this Messiah for a really, really, really long time. I mean, you consider, you go all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis here, after the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, that's the first time we get a prediction about the coming Messiah. And God tells Eve, I'm paraphrasing here from Genesis, basically one of your kids, one of your descendants, 
is going to crush the head of the serpent and take care of this evil problem, the sin problem. And so you got to realize the problem, this promise of a Savior has been around since the beginning of humanity here. And uh, I had this thought a few years back when I was teaching through the big picture of God's plan for humanity. I was teaching the kids when we were doing COVID, when we had COVID. And uh, I was struck by a certain thought when I was talking about it there for the kids. And I thought, you know, theoretically God could have brought forth mankind's Messiah, their Redeemer, a lot earlier. I mean, maybe he could have done it in generation two. Instead of Cain and Abel, he could have just brought forth the Messiah right then and there, kind of clapped his hands together and say, okay, it's done. I sent the Messiah right away. But God chose to wait. The timing wasn't yet ripe for that to happen. And we might ask and say, well, why would he wait? Uh, I'm speculating a little bit here based on some other scriptures, but I think there's some things that we would not learn as humanity if he just went for the shortcut there. We wouldn't really know the awfulness of sin. We wouldn't really understand as humanity our inability to fix things on our own with or without the help of the law. And I think that that's what Paul's tapping into in Galatians there. And we wouldn't really understand our need to trust in God's ways and provision rather than our own. So there was a time of waiting from that first promise. Fast forward 2,000 years from uh, Adam and Eve, and you come to a guy named Abraham. He's on the scene, and this promise that's given to Eve is basically passed on to Abraham. He's told in Genesis 12, uh, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of nations, and you're going to bless, the world's going to be blessed through, through you. But Abraham, if you read that story, he seems a little bit preoccupied. I mean, as nice as that promise sounds about a multitude of descendants and blessing the world, he and his elderly wife, Sarah, haven't been able to conceive even a single child. He might be thinking, hey, just one child would be nice. Abraham's 75 years old when he gets the promise, and he has to wait 25 years more when he's 100 years old to have Isaac be born. And he had a hard time waiting 25 years for that promise to come true. But that was nothing because the clock was still ticking on this promised Messiah. The book of Genesis comes and goes. Uh, we find at the very end in the last few chapters that the Messiah is going to come from Judah's line. But still the time wasn't yet right. More time passes. I mean, think about this. This is thousands of years here. It's already been a few millennia, but what's a few millennia more? King David of the line of Judah shows up, but he's not the Messiah. Still, the time's not right. God promises this uh, Messiah to one of David's descendants. He says, one of your kids is going to be the one. And hundreds of more years pass. Eventually, it's been about 4,000 years since this initial problem, a uh, promise to Eve in the Garden of Eden, about the Messiah. And mankind is getting a little bit punchy in the back seat of the station wagon, if you know what a station wagon is. Are we there yet, God? No, not yet. Are we there yet, God? No, not yet. Yes. <laughs> now? No, not yet. That's what we all want to say. Yes, we're there. And it's like mankind gets a little bit uptight and fidgety from waiting generation after generation after generation. Maybe some people start to wonder, hey, is this ever going to work out here? 
Are we ever going to get there? Is this Messiah ever going to show up? And then maybe I'll just go tend my sheep or do something like that. And then all of a sudden, it seems the fullness of time comes. God's purposes are complete. And he says, okay, this is it. It's go time. And we get Christmas. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The big wait is over. And my point here is that despite the surprising timeline of fulfillment, God kept his promise to bring our Messiah. And his timing was perfect in the fullness of time with everything he wanted to accomplish. But beyond that, the second point in Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, it brings up that there's a grand purpose to Jesus' incarnation. I'll read the verse again. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? For what purpose? Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And uh, I'm not going to belabor that point, but the basic idea is that God's faithfulness to us in the incarnation in Christmas was full of this purpose. God didn't just take on human flesh merely to hang out with us, although he did hang out with us in a manner of speaking. And it wasn't just merely to identify with us in our human struggles, although he did do that as well as our perfect high priest. But Paul says here, in the grand picture of God's purposes, Jesus took on human flesh to redeem us, to buy us back from the mess that we had gotten ourselves into so that we could receive adoption as God's sons. Bottom line, Christmas shows us beyond a doubt that God has been faithful to mankind. His promise was certain, a little slow in coming, maybe for our liking, but when it came, it came in big. And that's what we celebrate each Christmas. God coming in the flesh to save us and bring us back to God the Father. Well, that's, that's the first point. God's been faithful to us in the past, and really it's the anchor for the whole rest of the message here. But here's the second point here. God will be faithful to us too in the future. Again, there's many aspects that we could look at for this, just for time. I'm going to narrow it down and uh, not talk about the new heavens and the new earth, what our lives are going to be like with him in glory, but I want to keep us focused. So I just want to talk about one aspect of his future faithfulness to us, and that's his second coming. And uh, I'm going to just go through a few quick verses here. You can just listen, or if you want to flip quickly, you can do that as well. But I want us to have a quick sampler of verses here about the blessings that come with the second coming of Christ. Still in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship's in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is what Pastor Eric likes to call a body to die for. Can't wait to get mine. Maybe you too for yours. John 14, 2, a few books back. John 14, 2, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he gives them this promise. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what I have told you that I'm going to there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Sounds pretty nice to think of a place that 
that Jesus has prepared for us and that we get to be with him. Last one we'll look at here, just as far as future promises about Christ coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, if you want to turn there, or just listen. Paul says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. It means those who've passed away. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and the voice, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. What a great thought to think about being reunited with those who've passed on in Christ, but to be with the Lord forever. Three quick passages about the second coming of Christ, and we could go into tons more here. But the point I want to make is, if you are in Jesus Christ, meaning that you have uh, repented from your sin and you've turned to Jesus and say, hey, I want you to be the boss of my life. And you've put your trust in what he did on the cross for you to die for your sins and that he rose from the dead. You've got a bright, bright future ahead of you. And if that's you, you can look forward to your glorified, transformed body, your body to die for, freedom from sorrow, from sin. And doesn't this sound sweet? Perfect fellowship with God and with his people. It's pretty amazing. But I think the challenge for us uh, here and now, uh, just like with Jesus' first coming, is that there's this significant hang time between the initial promise and the future fulfillment. And the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming can be hard sometimes. And sometimes it can be filled with challenges or maybe loss or maybe even sometimes some discouragement. And if you're in that place or you've been in that place before, you might have asked, well, how long, Lord? How long is this craziness going to go on? When are you going to fix things fully? Uh, we want our happy ending right now, typically. And again, it's in God's power to bring things to a conclusion whenever he wants to. I mean, just like I mentioned earlier about the promised Messiah, God could have brought him a lot earlier in the very next generation after Adam and Eve. But God waited for the fullness of time. In the same way, uh, right after Jesus' resurrection, God could have said, this is the moment. I'm going to right all wrongs. We're going to judge all sin. I'm going to restore the kingdom right now. But he chose and he chooses to wait for a season still. But he has a purpose. And if we feel like we don't always understand God's ways or timing, we wouldn't be the first in Scripture. Uh, consider another example from the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts in our preaching series. We talked about this uh, chapter 1 when we first started the book of Acts, and we've talked about it in our men's group on Thursday mornings. But basically, the book of Acts starts out with a misunderstanding between the disciples and Jesus. Uh, you can just listen or you can turn to Acts 1 if you want. But basically, this is the situation. Jesus just rose from the dead. The victory's been won. And the disciples ask a very reasonable question. Acts 1, verse 6. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking, they're all smiles. They're thinking, this is it. Are we there yet? We're here. This is it. And then Jesus kind of says, not yet. 
Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, on the one hand, it's kind of a bummer to have to wait for something good, but we've got to realize that there is a meaningful purpose for us now, too. In this case, one thing we know, it's spreading the message about Jesus to the whole world. We've got an important job to do, and there is meaning and purpose to this season of waiting for fulfillment. But I want to come back to Christmas here. What do you do when you get frustrated and say it's too slow in coming? The world's still so messed up. It feels like it's just not panning out like you promised, God, and I don't know if I believe all these good promises here. The answer is what I said at the very beginning of the sermon. We look backward in time to God's faithfulness to us in Christmas so we can have confidence about our future. We know God was faithful in the past. We say, hey, his track record is sure. So we know we can be assured about his faithfulness in the future. And that's intended to be an encouragement for us. Now, to illustrate this point just in one person's life here, I want to quickly look at the life of one of God's people, a prophet in the Old Testament named Habakkuk. So if you want to flip over to Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, look over there. Um, our small group studied the book of Habakkuk this fall, and I warned them, I threatened them, I said, hey, I'm going to bring it Habakkuk during the Christmas message. So it's Habakkuk for the holidays. So you're welcome. Just what you wanted, right? It's like one of those gifts from grandma that you're like, what? You got me Habakkuk? I wanted like Matthew or something like that. But I'll say this, if you haven't read Habakkuk in a while, or maybe you never have, you should. It's a really great book. It's a short book of prophecy in the Old Testament. It's only three chapters long. And it has a theme in it that many of us can relate to, um, or we've been able to relate to at one point or another over the years. Basically, Habakkuk is this prophet of God in the Old Testament, and he has a beef with how God is running the universe. Um, and he basically says in chapter 1, he has this prayer to God, and he says, God, why are you letting so much evil go on all around me here, even in your own nation here. This is not right. And God answers his prayer in the first chapter. And he says, hey, don't worry about it, Habakkuk. I'm going to send the Babylonians to take care of all that evil in your nation. You're welcome, right? And Habakkuk goes, wait a second. That's not much of a solution, God. These Babylonians are, are wicked. They're evil people. How can you send someone to judge those who are more righteous than themselves? And God answers Habakkuk a second time. And this is the first part of Habakkuk I'll turn to in chapter 2. It starts out this way. God says to Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Write down the revelation and make it plain on the tablet so a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and not delay in simple terms, God's basically saying, hey, hey, Habakkuk, go get a pen and write this down because what I'm about to show you is certain, but it's a long way off in the future. It's going to happen. This is just a long ways off. And then as you read Habakkuk, God gives him this very detailed, very vivid uh, description about how he knows about all the sins of the Babylonians and that there is a future judgment coming to them. It will be their turn one day. And that's the bulk of chapter 2. When Habakkuk hears this description about 
what God knows about them and what he intends to do in judgment, he's just kind of shut mouth and starts thinking. The light bulb kind of goes off for him and his complaints stop and his attitude changes. And then, and I'm going to bring this back to Christmas here in a second, we get this very interesting chapter three in Habakkuk. Basically, after Habakkuk hears about this future judgment of the Babylonians, Habakkuk has this recollection, this memory of God's faithfulness in the past at a different time when he judged his enemies. And it's pretty awesome. It's pretty terrifying. And it fuels him. And this is the nugget that I want to to get here for us to connect it with Christmas. This is where I show the math. It's when Habakkuk remembers God's faithfulness in the past that he's given confidence that he's going to fulfill his promises in the future. Hear that. Habakkuk realizes, God, I know you've shown yourself faithful in the past, so I know that you will be faithful in the future. And uh, God did it before. He'll do it again. And that's the kind of stuff that will put fuel in your spiritual tank. And the same thinking is true for us. We're not typically looking back to consider God's faithfulness delivering the Jews out of Egypt or out of the Babylonian captivity, but we do look back and remember Christmas every single year. God promised his Messiah to come save humanity. And in the fullness of time, on Christmas Day about 2,000 years ago, God fulfilled that promise. And because of that, we can have confidence that his future promises about his second coming will be true with him. But all this thinking about God's faithfulness, about the past and the future, it should impact us now. And this is the last point. I'll hit it quickly. We are called... Did I get it? We're called... Come on. There we go. To live faithfully now. In light of all that God has done and all he will do, we need to live well before him now. And this is really the place that Habakkuk lands at. His confidence in God's future faithfulness changes the attitude, his attitude, about how he's living in the midst of all these unwelcome circumstances around him. There's evil around him. There's trouble on the horizon. But he moves from the place of complaint to a place of hope and trust and action. And the last part of Habakkuk ends like this. I'll just finish up at the end of the book here. It says, starting in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. He's basically shaking at the terror of the thought of God's past and future judgment against evil. And then he has this attitude adjustment at the back half of verse 16. He says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, there's no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, get in the picture here, the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord's my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And this is the basic thought of this last section of Habakkuk. His circumstances haven't changed. In fact, they're pretty desperate. No figs, no grapes, no olives, no food, no sheep no cattle. But you know what? No problem. Why? Because God knows 
or because Habakkuk knows that God's going to be faithful in the future because of what he has done in the past. And his attitude changes. Verse 16, he can wait patiently. Verse 18, twice, he's rejoicing in God. He's being joyful. And at the very end here, we get this picture of confidence. Uh, we're given uh, in verse 19, it says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Okay, the picture here is that like of a mountain goat, we'd probably say, but here he says a deer who has secure footing in the mountains, even though he's barely got a ledge to stand up on those mountaintops. And Habakkuk has confidence to face the difficult situations in his life because he gets it. God's shown himself to be faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future so I can live faithfully now. And now with the feet of a deer or a mountain goat, if you will, he's ready to walk that out. And the same should be true for us. When we richly dwell on what God has done for us, especially at this time of the year, especially at Christmas time in the incarnation. I mean, let that overwhelm us, you know, for me too. We've got to dwell on this and think about that. But God took on human flesh to redeem us and call us to himself. Because of his faithfulness there, we can confidently trust in what's still ahead of us. And then with that, our attitude could change. We can ah, exhale and walk it out. And I'll end with this. It's probably the most quoted verse from Habakkuk. It's chapter 2, verse 4. You can just listen. God's speaking to Habakkuk, and he basically says, you know, Habakkuk, when the chips are down and the world seems mixed up, and evil and injustice seem to be winning for a season, do you know how my people are supposed to stand? He says, the righteous will live by faith. Or, depending on which translation you have in English, you might read, the righteous person will live by their faithfulness. And those two translations are not contradictory. The righteous live by their faith or by their faithfulness because if someone's living by faith and they really believe God and take him at his word, they're going to live it out faithfully. What we believe is played out in how we live in the here and now. So this is the lesson that Habakkuk learns and that we need to learn too. And so this Christmas day, I just want us to each consider what's our point of application about where we need to live faithfully before God at the end of this year, going into 2023. Maybe for some of us, uh, we just need to take to heart Habakkuk's attitude adjustment and follow suit. And that attitude adjustment can be maybe the hardest place to start, to move from a place of complaint and doubt and mistrust to a place of confidence, patient waiting, and joy. Or maybe faithfulness for you this next uh, week or year is sticking it out in the daily grind not giving up on a task or a responsibility or maybe even a person. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Perseverance. Or lastly, maybe working on our faithfulness in this new year means sharing the gospel with a family member. You got a meal this afternoon with a family member? This could be the opportunity. Politics and religion, always fun talking, talking points, right? Or it could be working on some area of obedience before God, just in our personal lives. Um, speaking in the context of the second coming of Christ, the Apostle Peter says, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the evangelism part. He wants people to know him. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar 
The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. That's the sanctification part. As you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. I hope this message encourages you today. We have a great just anchor point for our soul of God's faithfulness to us in the past. In Christmas Day, he promised the Messiah. He sent the Messiah when the time had reached its fulfillment of time. That should fuel our trust in the future. And that confidence in the future should help us walk it out before and today. Considering God's past and future faithfulness helps us to live faithfully now.